Good morning. Happy Easter, everybody. Today's scripture reading is from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 29. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, One of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there's a wonderful family here this morning. Half of the family's here. There's a few wonderful families, so... I mean, not all of you. (laughs) Um, Uh... Things that aren't in your notes. Uh, the wonderful family I'm thinking of, and maybe they're not in the room right now. He's probably taking uh, taking Ariana off to preschool. Uh, is Catherine and Eric and Ariana? And uh, Ariana's one of the little girls who dances around at the front here. If she stood still, you might think she's just a doll. And then she starts moving. Well, that's actually a, a person. Um, but it's not just Catherine and Eric and Ariana now. It's Catherine and Eric and Ariana and Evan. And they've had a little boy. Amen. Just, just this week, born, I, I mean, I don't know for sure. Catherine would know for sure. Uh, born eight days or nine days, and that's a significant difference past the due date. Um, Catherine wrote a brief reflection, I think around the due date, maybe just after the due date, uh, on waiting. And it's going to come out in our church magazine that, that in, a, in, next, in two weeks from now will be out. Um, but uh, I, of course, have read the reflection that she wrote. And it's incredible how reading that before Evan was born and reading it again 
after Evan was born, and it's completely different. You read it before Evan was born, and you feel a little bit of what Catherine's feeling, um, just weary and, and a little bit, um, well, she would say impatient, and, and just, oh, Lord, how, how long? But uh, then afterwards, everything's different instantly. Everything changes. Here's this little man now. Here's this family that is no longer simply Catherine and Eric and Ariana. You'd never say that again. And, and Evan. Everything changes at this moment of birth. And then there's a whole new pace to life. This morning, for Christians, celebrating Easter is always and ever one of those mornings where it's the morning where everything changes. It's not the same as it was yesterday. It's not the same as it was Friday. Jesus Christ is risen. Hallelujah. I can't imagine what it would have been like for those followers of Jesus on that first Easter. Actually, that's not true. I can't imagine it because in my faith I feel something like it. They were not simply impatient or weary or exhausted on Friday and Saturday. They did not carry with them, as Catherine would, waiting for Evan. They did not carry with them the anticipation of blessing after the weariness. They thought perhaps that all there was to do was to adjust to the real world, which is what people are still telling you today. It can't possibly be this good that you could trust in a risen Savior. Make your own way. Make the best of things. Try to build yourself a life. Those followers would have carried with them darkness and resignation and the sense that the world really was cold and heartless and maybe a little bit of a realization about their place in it, feeling small and insignificant and not in any good way. And then, and the stories are told differently, right? This is one of the great um, pointers to the fact that this is a true story that Jesus rose from the dead because each account, even in the four Gospels we have, is slightly different. They always say that one way that interrogators know you're lying is if your story matches up perfectly. And they're so exuberant this day that the storytellers telling the story sometime later put details in, change details. If we can't, they don't all match up perfectly. But Mary goes to the tomb in this state of darkness and resignation, and each person a little bit different. Mary, kind of a dutiful sense to her, because stopping would be another kind of death. And so she finds the way to just keep going, to care for Jesus even after Jesus has died. Her idea is that she's going to care for the body. And she arrives, and there's another blow. How cruel can the world be? His body has been stolen. The stone marking the tomb has been rolled aside. And she sobs in grief and despair, and I think to some degree a hatred of the world. Isn't it enough that they killed him? And now this indignity? So she sobs like you sob at times, thinking there's no decent future. She hears a voice. 
Different accounts say differently. One is an angel speaks, woman, why are you sobbing? She hears another voice as she's crying. She thinks it's the gardener because it's early in the morning. You know, bakers and gardeners doing their work. She thinks it's a gardener and she says, without, I think, looking at him, if you know where they've taken him, can you just tell me? She doesn't even know how to take another step. She's just trying to carry on. And he says her name. And when he says her name, she comes back to life. My Lord, my Savior. She recognizes him as he speaks her name. And I think at that moment, this is my imagination for it, but I think it's okay. I think at that moment the garden moves from being a place of darkness to a place of light. Something like when we turned the lights on here this morning, but a lot better. It's, it's a garden in the morning, but now it's filled with light. The disciples, they're in their own state of weariness. They're not being that dutiful, frankly. They're, I guess others are caring for Jesus' body. They're hiding out, wondering if those who killed Jesus would be after them too. And Mary runs in, declaring the news. And they run, as John tells the details. You remember this, I say this each year. In John's Gospel, as John writes the story, he has a different name now. He calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. And he says, uh, she came and she told us and we didn't really believe her, so we ran to see what had happened. And Peter, Peter got a head start on me. But if you read the account in John, it says the disciple that Jesus loved got to the tomb first. In other words, I'm a faster runner than Peter is. Still human tellings. And looks in and tomb is empty. In one account, another gospel account, the visitors to the empty tomb are greeted. And this is so playful. It's such a resurrection story. They're greeted, and this is in our scriptures, by an angel sitting on top of the rock that's been rolled away. I picture the angel just kind of dangling their feet, if feet are required. There's a frenetic energy to the tellings and a complete change. We were in darkness. We didn't even know we were waiting for something, but now everything's changed. From darkness to light, from death to life, from the end of the world, which is what everybody expects. It's all that people have to offer. From the end of the world to a future. I thought, after Good Friday, that I'd have to figure out my life from this place of paralysis. Still in grief and loss on Friday and Saturday, And then, perhaps, like those followers moving, to make the best of it. One by one, getting up again and continuing on with life. When Jesus rises from the dead, the encounters are sporadic. He appears to two followers. You know the story on the road to Emmaus. Two followers asks them kind of basic questions. What's going on in the city? And they try to explain to him. Well, we thought that this one who was crucified was so and so. But they're basically telling Jesus the Bible. You do the same thing, too. Try to teach Jesus what the Bible says. They don't even know who's walking with them. They think, oh, he's kind of a nice fellow. And then they get to where they're going and they sit down to share a meal and he takes the bread and he breaks it and he goes to hand it to them and they just about break down. And their eyes are opened and they realize that it's him. This is how playful and sporadic 
his appearances after the resurrection are. The move is from, I have been crucified with Christ, to he is risen, he is risen indeed. Alleluia, I have been raised with Christ. And that is my faith. That's why I live in the light. That's why I hope good things. That's why I'm able to love. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be suspicious. Because my trust isn't in this world. It's in my Lord and Savior. And he is good. And I have been brought back to life. If you ask what has happened in Christian theology, theological moment here, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and you ever go to those services, and maybe they're necessary at times for some people, but for me, nobody's ever really been able to convince me of things like the resurrection of Jesus by like scientific evidence. You know what I mean? It doesn't quite fit. A guy raised from the dead. So, you know, you do things like, well, his followers changed the world after that, and they'd have to be pretty ridiculous and deluded to believe in it that much if they hadn't, they didn't know the risen Savior, all these kinds of things. Or, you know, at this time and this, uh, it's fine, it's okay. I've, I've never really, it's not been the thing for me. I understand that trusting in Jesus Christ as one who was dead and risen back to life is a leap of faith. It's just that it is better than, any, than anything else anybody has ever offered me. I know what the world has on offer. And it's both less and more ridiculous. Just go out and see how people are presenting themselves as successful. It's all such silliness. I mean, you might not believe in this, but I'm willing to say you believe in more ridiculous stuff than this. Because look what you're giving your life to. So I'm not looking for that kind of convincing. But the theological point on Easter Sunday, and one of our church fathers, St. Augustine, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, used a Latin term to describe it. He said, what's happened on Good Friday and Easter Sunday is admirable commercium. I don't know Latin, as you can see. The exchange. An admirable business deal, a divine business deal. But thanks be to God, God is, in the standards of our world, a terrible business person. He makes this horrible deal. Because here's the deal, according to Augustine. God takes our sin and gives us his divinity. That's the deal. What a loser. God takes the darkness of fallen humanity and gives us righteousness in Jesus Christ. God takes death, even death on a cross, and gives us life everlasting and abundant. The Bible has a description for this as well. It's called an incomprehensible gift. You'll never understand. You are simply, it is always our invitation to you if you've never done this. You'll never understand it. You are simply to receive it. And then if you've been a Christian long enough like I have, you'll think, I am so glad I don't understand this. Because it's better than anything I could ever grasp. 
And now we live our lives in light of the resurrection. So our reading for this morning is to consider Thomas, a 21st century man in the first century. There's every indication that Thomas is a good guy. He just wants or needs a little proof is all. The disciples, the other ones, they have seen, many of them, the risen Christ, and they come to tell Thomas, he is risen. And Thomas doesn't say, he is risen indeed, alleluia. They say, he is risen. And Thomas, like many of you, maybe some of you this morning say, he he says, uh, no, I don't think so. At least I need to see it for myself. I need to see the marks in his hands. I need to see his side or I won't believe. Why is Thomas like that? Well, you could say that he's a skeptic. That, I think, is a, a small description. It might be part of it. I think we can assume more than that. Thomas had been a follower of Jesus Christ, as we know. And at the death of Jesus Christ, he had perhaps, and I think this is a, a worthwhile guess, come to the realization that putting his hope in Jesus, that had been misplaced hope. Jesus had not fulfilled the promise that Thomas had trusted him to fulfill. And Thomas was already moving to make sense of the world. Moving from trusting in this one, maybe even as Messiah, looking for abundant life, but now seeing that instead it was death and darkness. Because you know this in your lives. I know you you know this. If you've come out of dark times or difficult times, various words are given to this in descriptions, dark night of the soul, Uh, Various kinds of battles with depression can at times be this. I'm not talking necessarily clinical, but but those all mix together. But if you've been in a period of great difficulty, sometimes one of the greatest threats is is moving to believe that, that it might be good instead of bad. It's a really difficult thing to come out of the desert because, and I've been there in my own life, because you can get used to the desert. And you can tell yourself, I know how to live here now. Somebody comes and says, do you know what? Things are good. He is risen. And you say, and now we can identify with Thomas, right? Oh, I don't know. I'm going to have to see it. The story this declaration, he is risen, and then Thomas' energy, even if you can sympathize with Thomas, it still cuts the energy, right? This exuberance. He's, you know what it's like to feel really, really good, and some of you struggle with this sometimes in marriage or whatever else. If you're feeling really good and your partner's feeling terrible, you're really, really trying to love them, but eventually it just gets a bit difficult that they're not feeling good. And at moments where you're feeling exuberant, If you come in, he is risen, and somebody you love says, I'm not so sure, the energy just stops. And then the curious, a curious point in this story. The next line says, as Jill read it to us, one week later. In other translations, actually it's a little bit more accurate, it says eight days later. Now, I hope that that bugs you. Because I know it, actually I know it bugs you. I just know you don't read your Bible well enough to get this sometimes. Because you're always, many of you are impatient with things in your life. Like why hasn't this happened? Why hasn't this good thing happened yet? Why haven't we figured this out? Right? And then you read the story and you skip over the eight days later thing. Like okay, whatever. Don't, can you give, give scripture a little more credit than that? 
Thomas was feeling this doubt. The energy for many of these disciples had stopped at this doubt. And Jesus waits eight days? There's a sermon in there. Some of you are living in that space. I mean, I don't know. We're not told how to make sense of it. Just, he waited eight days. Something, I, I, all I take is this. I know God wants good for me, and he is good to me. But sometimes he lets me wait a while. And sometimes it's eight days, and sometimes it's 18 years. Well, he wouldn't wait that long, would he? Eight days later, Jesus appears again, it says. And it's all grace and all beauty. He comes in, or he appears, and he says to the whole assembled group of disciples, he says, beautiful, peace be with you. And then he doesn't say anything else to anyone else until he says, Thomas. Isn't that grace? Thomas, come here. Put your finger here. Put your hand in my side, in this wound. And Thomas does. And Jesus says, not forcefully, not judgmentally, Thomas, it's an invitation. And it's the same invitation to you today, particularly if you've never received this gift of salvation in Christ. He says, Thomas, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas says, and it's in bold capital letters, my Lord and my God. You think it was like scientific evidence that Thomas was reacting to at that point? Well, now my worldview has changed because I see actually you're risen. It's not just the physical proof. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that changes Thomas. He's so kind to him. And now what I want you to see, and this is difficult for many of us, particularly if we're in places where we long for our loved ones to know Christ or to know Christ in a more meaningful way. There's a difficult truth in this text, and that is that the disciples had already told Thomas about Jesus, and it wasn't enough. I could say to some of you, simply with that realization, you are not alone. They told Thomas about Jesus, and it wasn't enough. He didn't believe, or he couldn't. It was only by the presence of Jesus Christ that Thomas was changed. So what are you to do with this for your own loved ones, your own family? You consider your faith. Would you tell them? You have told them of your faith. Maybe they've even responded. You should tell them, and we should tell one another more. And we need more room for testimony to say, this is what has happened in my life as I've put my faith in Jesus. However, this story reminds us of this truth. There are many people for whom that will not be enough. They must encounter Jesus personally. And we can't control it. But I want to give you something else if you're in that place as as a parent or brother, sister, grandparent, friend. I want to break from what has sometimes been generated in the history of the church where that generates fear 
like, oh no, what about so-and-so, my child or someone who doesn't believe? And it just generates this, this fear. I'm going to tell you flat out, I see no place for that in Jesus Christ. He is good. He is good. And if you have put your trust in him, hear this. You can trust him for your family. Oh, Thomas. We pray for this, for one another, that we would have this personal encounter with Jesus Christ. We pray for this for you if you've come as a visitor. We're not, I mean, we're not trying to get more people on the team. You know what I mean? And it's so hard in our culture because everything seems like a sales job. It's the furthest thing from that. It's an invitation to say, would you be open to seeing the life, the light, the power, the victory that is in Jesus Christ? And we pray that the Holy Spirit would work in such a way that you can see. We sing this song in just a few minutes. And can it be? And Spencer, who was playing this morning, and who will play at the beginning of this next song, that's him now. He got up at the perfect time. Thank you, Spencer. Uh, Spencer did not ask me to do this, and he'll probably get mad at me for doing it, but I'm going to do it. Spencer has a, a CD out with this piece on it and a whole bunch of other stuff, a couple hymns and a bunch of just like non-hymn fun songs. Not that hymns aren't fun. Anyway, I'll stop. But uh, talk to Spencer. Talk to Spencer, and he'll find a way to get you one of those CDs. Okay, you can give him a bunch of money for it because he's put a lot of money into putting it together. And musicians, you know, it's tough these days. But uh, it's an absolutely beautiful piece. And can it be? I'll give you a little background to it. It was written uh, quite a number of years ago. Uh, by Charles Wesley. Do you know who Charles Wesley is? Charles Wesley, his brother John, and a whole bunch of young fellows, that's, I guess, how you'd say it, uh, in the 18th century in Oxford, in England, were going to Oxford, and they started a club. It was not a fraternity. It was like the anti-fraternity. They began to devise rules how to live a life that will please God. So all of a sudden, right away, you guys are thinking, I don't want to be in that club. That's going to be boring. And that's what a lot of people at Oxford thought, too. They became, they got kind of a reputation as being kind of annoying. I mean, really religious people are always annoying, or, you know, like really rule-driven religious people. You know that, right? Sorry if I'm opening your eyes to that. Um, and so Charles and, and, and John and a number of other young men they, they were given this derogatory name. They were given it sneeringly. The last time I heard this story, I know the story fairly well, was actually by Tim Keller, uh, who, who uh, works at Presbyterian, uh, sorry, Redeemer Presbyterian in New York, quite a famous preacher. And he used the word sneering uh, th- that to give the nature of the name that was given to them. The name that was given to them was Methodist. And it was like, a, a, you know, these people are Methodists. They have, a, they have a function and a formula for everything, and we can't stand them. But then something happened. One by one, they started to change. And they have written accounts of it. In fact, a number of them changed after reading the same book. It was Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians, and it was the preface to the book of Galatians. And so here are these really annoying religious people who thought that they had the cure for the world, read these words. Let's see if I can get them. I put scrawled them here. Martin Luther. There is then left nothing to do but only accept Christ.
who has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. One of the young men named William Holland says, when I read those words, a power came over me as I cannot describe. My burden fell and my heart was filled with peace. My companions, he said, seeing this in me, fell on their knees and prayed. And when I went into the streets, he says, around Oxford, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. And then he says, speaks later of this song, which Charles Wesley, one of these young men, wrote, and you're about to sing. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain. It continues, you'll sing the whole thing. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So what now? Now you are free. Will you live in this freedom? Will you put your faith in Jesus Christ or will you take the chains that the world has to offer and put them back over your shoulders? There is no other religion like this, though we should uh, not attack other faiths. Sometimes the things you hear from some parts of the church are deeply troubling. But there is no other religion like this. There is no other message like this. There is no need or license to see anyone as better, to see ourselves. We can never, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if we ever act in ways in our Christian faith that we're superior to others, it communicates one thing. We didn't understand what happened. No need to see ourselves as better or more worthy because what he has done for us, he has done for the whole world. This is his relentless love. The divine business deal is available to all. You give him your sin, he gives you his divinity. You give him your death, he gives you life. You give him darkness, he gives you light. You give him all the reasons that this world is a terrible place and he gives you love beyond comprehension. And now my prayer for you, each of you, this is my prayer for you. It's a run-on sentence in Paul's uh, book, letter to the Ephesians. Many of you know it in various translations. I pray that the eyes of your heart, I'm praying this for you, each of you. I pray that the eyes of your heart would shine bright with the hope to which you're called, that you would be strengthened in your inner being with strength to know that which is beyond knowledge. I want to read it again. Because you, right from the start, I pray that the eyes of your heart, what? It's so glorious that it's beyond being able to describe. I pray that the eyes of your heart will shine bright with the hope to which you're called, that you will be strengthened in your inner being to know that which is beyond knowledge. How could that be? And this is what I'm praying that you know. Join Paul in this prayer, that you will know 
with all your strength, the height, the depth, the width, and the length of the love of God. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. And now we sing. <laughs>